You're listening to a podcast from River City Church of Jacksonville, Florida. For more audio and video podcasts, visit rccjax.com. Okay, Spiritual Solution Sunday, you know, and loved Rose's testimonies reminding us if we, what a great word of encouragement. Man, if we really trust and believe that God loves us, the creator of the universe loves us, what will we ask this year? And Spiritual Solutions, again, it came out of this idea that resolutions are things that we write down, that we can control, that we need to work harder at, that are more of a reflection of the world, as opposed to a spiritual solution that is a reflection of something only God can do. Today I want to talk about the second half of the verse in uh, Song of Solomon 1.4 that talks about and deals with what happens when we write our spiritual solution down and we bump up into failure, we bump into sin, we bump into a reality we didn't expect, because that's what's going to happen today. Today, all these white cards are there for you, and you're going to write your spiritual solution down, something that only God could do in your life that would create faith, that would, it would strengthen you, and the enemy's going to attack you. And he might attack you by tempting you in sin. He might attack you by creating havoc in your physical body, like we heard Ashley talk about. He might attack you uh, in suffering in different ways. He might attack you in your business, whatever. He's going to attack you, though. Because, again, the enemy comes and he opposes the kingdom of God. And spiritual illusions are a reflection of what we believe God is going to do in our life that will draw us close to him, that will demonstrate to the world that he is alive and that he is real. So what do you do when you fail, when you struggle, when you're confronted with temptation? What do you do? Well, what do you do when you, do you work harder? I mean, that's what the world says. The world says if you fail a test, what do you do? Study more. If you don't reach your business goals, what do you do? Re-strategize and work harder. What about when you lose a game, 45 to 10? You go back to the drawing board and pray more. No, you, you, you work harder. You, know, you listen to Tim Tebow last night after they got destroyed, and he says, they said, well, what are the things you're going to work on? He listed like 15 attributes. Well, my feet, my scrambling, my mechanics, my eyes downfield. He mentioned all these things. In the offseason, he's going to go back and work on with the purpose and the hope of being better, you know, getting better at what he's paid to do. It was great. It was a great, great deal. It was a great, is that what we do? Is that what we've learned in the church? I think we've been told that. I think we've been told that. That when you struggle with sin or you fail or you falter, you, well, what do you got to do? You, you better pick yourself up and work a little harder. But that's not true. I think when we fail morally or we struggle with sin and suffering, we're supposed to throw a party. We're supposed to throw a Jesus party. We're not supposed to celebrate our sin and brokenness and how jacked up our lives are and that we're weak. We're not celebrating that. We confess, we repent, yes, yes, but then we celebrate who Jesus is, what he has done to conquer our sin, that we are free from that sin, we push the delete button, and we get back in the battle. That's what today's talk is about. And it begins with this scripture right here. And this is a theme that's taught all through the New Testament. And the New Covenant is the promise that there is freedom from this lie that it's up to us. That you hear a biblical truth and then you just have to apply it. You have to work hard to apply it. Are we called to make an effort and to understand the Bible and the truths of the Bible? Absolutely. But it's only the work of Christ in our life that makes it possible for us to do any good. And so here's a scripture. This is Song of Solomon 1.4. And it says, we began last week with these first two parts of it. Draw me after you. This is her life vision. Draw me after you, Lord. This is the foundation for all. If anything is going to happen in my life, it begins with this reality. Intimacy with you sets my path, gives me perspective, so that I can even write a spiritual solution that has anything to do with you. 
So draw me after you, Lord, first. Intimacy with you is the most important thing. So that we can run together is what that scripture says. And it's referring to us as a body running this race that God's called us into corporately. But it's also about us running with Jesus. Not behind him too far. Certainly not in front of him. But allowing Jesus to set the pace in our life. Again, I said all this last week. And then I said, but the way that it happens is the king has to take us into his chambers. That's only as God moves and we are brought into his chambers, into his presence, that that can be made that we can know, that we can experience what we're supposed to be doing. We can be told who we really are. And I want to begin today by kind of bringing a little light to that. What does it mean for him to bring us into his chambers? Because it's an unusual experience. It's a unique experience. We're called every day to seek the Lord. If we're to have perspective on every day, any day, we're to call out to the Lord. We're supposed to spend time with the Lord. It says pray without ceasing. And so this is not what this is talking about. When God brings, when he picks us up and takes us into his chambers, it's talking about a unique experience with God. Something that for some of us might happen once in a lifetime. It might happen for others of us multiple times in a week. Only God knows what we need, when we need it, and how we need it. But what happens in this time is very similar when it does happen. In this place, when God carries us and brings us into his presence, we experience what he has for us in its truest and purest form. We experience his vision for our life. We hear from him on who we really are. We hear from him on his love for us. We hear from him about our identity. We hear from him about our purpose. We hear from him at times about his affection, how he thinks about us. And in these experiences in his chamber, we are grounded in a reality that we have clarity. It's like we're not seeing dimly through the window in that moment. And we have a clarity about our life, a clarity about his plan for our life, a clarity about his love for us that grounds us. And out of that place, out of these chamber experiences, we then are able to set our life vision and goals. And that's what the bride's talking about here. And the bride is us, it's the church and the story. And so the bride's basically saying, draw me close to you. The desire to be drawn close can only come from an experience that she's had with him in the chamber. You know, let us run together. The ministry that he's called her to and us to, we could only know if we spent time in the presence of his chamber with him. But after we spend time with Jesus, with God and his presence in these powerful experiences, and, and again, it might happen during soaking, it might happen during ignite, it might happen during when you're driving down the road and you have to pull over because God is just speaking to you. Some of you have had these experiences. Maybe some of you haven't. But usually they happen when God's getting ready to do something in our life. We know that it's God. But what happens is we get this, we have this experience with God. We have perspective unlike we've ever had. We write down a spiritual solution or a plan that we feel like he's laid out for us. And then the enemy attacks. And so what do we do when the enemy attacks? And he tells us, he says, this is what you do. You choose to exult or be glad and rejoice in you, in Jesus. We will extol your love more than wine. The response that the Song of Solomon tells us to have as somebody who runs into a situation after we've seen and heard what God's plans for us is that we choose to worship. We choose to be glad and we choose to rejoice in a way that forces us to remember the goodness that God has had in our life and I, or what God has said to us, the, the reality of who we really are. And to challenge what the enemy is saying about us with the truth and as we remember about what God has told us and who we really are when we were with him 
in the chamber when we're with them and we're intimate with them. And I talked last week about the importance as believers. God always is telling us, you, you got to look back. Remember, 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 nation of Israel. Remember, my people, what I've done in your life so that you have perspective on what I can do in your life. You know, you hear a story like Ashley's, or you hear a story where someone is just overwhelmed with the situation, they don't know what to do. It's, if you keep your eyes on the situation, you will, you'll become hopeless. But if you remember in your time with Jesus, that, no, I am the healer. I am the great physician. I am the author of life. I bring people from death. I've brought people who are dead to life. I can certainly heal. I am capable, but you have to remember and have these experiences with God as our foundation if we're going to be able to do that. But God says to the bride, you need to choose to rejoice and exult in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, the redemptive work of Christ in your life. We have to choose to be glad and to rejoice in Jesus, who he is, what he has done to redeem us, the work that he has done on the cross that gives us hope. We do not just wallow in our sorrows and our condemnation. We have to remember his love for us, how special we are to him, and the promises he has made for us. When people fail, when we fail, our normal response is we get into our condemnation. Like, it's like we start to look at how bad we are. We begin to magnify our failure. We begin to, we, we begin to make a bigger issue than it really is to God. We draw attention to it and we flag it and we have this sense in us, man, I need, I, need to, I need to spend some time wallowing here. And that's never going to put you in a place to be able to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's never going to put you in a place where you're going to be able to have perspective on what God wants to do in and through you. It will take away from that. But we've been taught, haven't we? We've been taught, no, 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 no. If you, if you do me, I mean... Anybody who's ever dated anybody, anybody who's been in a friendship with somebody, if you do them wrong, if you hurt them, what do they want you to do? They want you to suffer, don't they? They, they want to see your guilt. They want to feel the guilt in you. They're like, uh-huh, yeah, how's that feel? Mm, yeah, mm-hmm, take that. Yeah, yeah, I'm pissed. I'm mad at you. How's that feel? Doesn't feel too good, does it? But we've learned, like, from our parents, like we, say, like, we do something wrong as a little kid. Our parents are like, mm-hmm. And they're like, what are they, why do they do that? Because they want you to feel bad for what you did in the hopes that you won't do it again. That's a great idea. Let's use our guilt to motivate us. Awesome. But that's what we've learned. You know, and, or we, you do something bad in a relationship. Mm-hmm. They're going to make you suffer silent treatment. Where does that come from? They want to hurt you. And so we've learned in relationships from our parents, from our school teachers, from whoever, that if you mess up, you better feel it. I want to see it. I want you to feel guilty. I want to feel your guilt. I want to see your guilt. And we transfer that over into our relationship with God. And so when we mess up with God, we're like, God, I feel your eyes burning on me, Jesus. I'm feeling guilty, Jesus. Just let me wallow here for a while. I feel so bad. I'm a worm. You know, we feel this, right? All the while thinking like, and then I'm not going to do it anymore. This guilt, Lord, it's it's, it's motivating me. I'm not going to do it again. Is that jacked up thinking or what? But we all do it. We all believe that that is how God sees us, that God wants to motivate us with guilt. 
That is so backwards. So backwards. That doesn't help us at all. I mean, it's so obvious when we look at it like that, isn't it? But that's exactly what we do. So when we fail, what are we supposed to do? We need to repent. We need to push the delete button and move on. And then we need to throw a Jesus party. We need to get crazy and worship Jesus like we've never worshiped him before. So that we can experience and worship the gladness and the joy that can only come from Jesus in a time in our life when we're struggling, when we feel guilty, when we feel bad. So that we can be redeemed. And we rejoice in the redemptive work of Jesus. We rejoice in the cross. I mean, how many times have you come into our worship service, you're feeling guilty, you're feeling down, you did something last night you weren't supposed to do, or, you, or, or the, this week, or you were, did something in work that was illegal or whatever, you're feeling guilty, you're feeling condemned about it. You've asked for forgiveness, but you still feel that way because you don't want to do it again. And you always end up doing it again. If, that's, if, that's, if it's in your own strength, you're going to do it again. You know? And, and you come into worship, And you experience God in worship, and what happens? Does anything change on the outside? Nothing changes. But you leave like you've risen above that. It's like all of a sudden, that doesn't affect me the way that it did when I came. That's not as important as it was. I have perspective now. Why is that? Because you're remembering the work of Jesus and what he has done to redeem you on the cross. And that you have been washed clean that you have been made new, that you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and this is who you really are. Your identity was established in the presence of God in his chamber. And you remember that, and you're like, that's right. This is who I am. That's not who I am. I'm not a sinner who's struggling to be a saint. I am saint, washed clean, beautiful to God, who might sin every once in a while because the enemy's after me, because I'm dangerous. My spiritual solutions oppose the kingdom of darkness. And so when I write it down, I make it known, I declare this is what God's doing, I should expect to be shot at by the enemy. And so when I am, I choose to worship. Isn't that cool? We throw a Jesus party. The Lord doesn't want you to wrestle and to wallow with your condemnation. He doesn't want you to be motivated by your guilt and stand in your own strength. He wants us to repent. He wants us to get back into the battle. He wants us to take our stand before him, rejoicing in him. He says, I want to be your strength. I want my love for you to be what you stand on, what your identity is in, and what motivates you to fight, and what leads you back to me. God says this, I see you in my chamber. I feel and express my love to you. That is why I died for you. Everything that needs to be done for you to be free from your sin has been and by Jesus. Celebrate his work. Choose to worship him. Receive my love for you, and you will find freedom. You will find freedom. This love that we experience in his chamber, this truth about who we are, is better than anything the world has to offer. The love God God calls us into is more powerful than any other force in life that can motivate us. It satisfies us unlike anything this world has to offer. And when we choose to worship, we are choosing to do battle in the spiritual realm. It's spiritual warfare. It's how we respond. It's how we fight the enemy's temptation in our life, the lie that we're nothing. It's how we oppose 
bad news. We choose to worship, and this is why we know that. In, in Revelation, I mean, this is all through Scripture, our response to God because he is good, not because of our circumstances, all through Scripture. But in Revelation 19, at the marriage supper, at the very end of time, we read this. Let us be glad and rejoice, same language, and give him glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his wife has, been, has made herself ready. We will rejoice and be glad. Our confession that we will be glad and rejoice in him and this life is a foreshadowing of the celebration at the marriage supper. And we are using the very language that we will use in the end to declare victory, to declare victory now. No, my identity is in Christ now. I've been redeemed now. The battle is over. It's won. It's done. It's finished. This is who I am. And it's spiritual warfare. It's how we oppose the enemy. Does it take effort? Yes. Do we repent? Yes. Do we confess? Yes. Does the Holy Spirit at times move us towards life through conviction? Yes. The enemy, though, wants us to move away from God, to wallow in sin, and that is moving towards death. That's the difference between being convicted by the Spirit. It moves towards life and freedom and forgiveness. The enemy moves us towards guilt, condemnation, and burden away from the Lord. But we say these words as the bride, as Christ's bride in the song, as a reminder in our day-to-day journey of who we are, warring against the things that the enemy is lying to us about. It's in worship. It's in throwing a party for Jesus and what he has done for us. That's why, you know, that's why we have soaking ministry. That's why we have Ignite for six hours every other week. Because it's in those places that you will experience God in the chamber. It's why it's so important that we draw away and we have throwdowns. You know, our, our staff, every other week, we clear this room out and we dance like crazy before the Lord, saying, Lord, speak to us and worship just this pure. There's no agenda. And sometimes we just come in here, we turn the lights off, and we just soak for an hour or 45 minutes or whatever we have time for as a staff. But it's so important in those places that we experience God because it's there that we hear from him and we know who we are and that we're able to look back and remember. If you don't have those experiences, then what are you going to look back to? Where are you going to connect in your heart that will remind you of who you really are? So one of the things that happens is is spiritual warfare. The second thing that happens, though, when we choose to worship the Lord is that we reveal a truth to the world that is, is not able to be comprehended any other place. And the truth is this, is that our identity, our hope, is not in our circumstances. Our identity and our hope is not in what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, what we're doing, what's happening to us in life. Our identity is in the work of Jesus Christ. And you hear a story like Ashley's, or you hear a story like Rose's, or you hear, you hear different these testimonies, and people are sitting out there. You're sitting out in the audience, right? And you hear this testimony I mean, we've walked through so much brokenness in our church with people. People have lost babies. You know, people have had miscarriages. People have had children die. And they come up here and they say, in the midst of it all, Jesus met me. And I had this calm and this peace and this rest that solidified his, and I'm not mad at him at all. I love him. My love for him has grown and I can't explain it. And we hear those stories and we go, Jesus must be real because that just doesn't make sense. I would be so angry if that happened to me. But they're not. Why? Because of their chamber experiences. Because their identity is in something greater than the world. And we're told this worship, the last line, it says this. Go back to the other verse. 
It says that your love, we will rejoice in your love or be glad in your love more than wine. And the first second time I taught on this, the same verse was up there. And when it talks about wine in this marriage feast, it's, it's talking about this reality that this love we're talking about that brings freedom is greater than anything the world has to offer. And that the wine is, re, is, is reflective of or is a metaphor for all of the bad things that are associated with alcohol, the drunkenness, the debauchery, living for the world, the flesh, all of that's represented. And, God, and, and, and the scripture says, and God's love, this love is better than anything the world has to offer. Anything and everything the world has to offer. We rejoice in your love. But it also means all of the blessings and the good things from God. My love is greater than anything you'll get in marriage. My love is greater than any blessing I will give you financially. My love is greater than any physical healing that you'll ever have. My love is greater than any circumstance that comes from me. It's my love that is the greatest. It's better than anything this world has to offer and anything that I have to offer. My love is the greatest thing you could experience. It's what will bring you freedom. It's what will allow you to sustain victory when you're in failure. When you're broken, it's what will bring you to me for healing. It's what causes us, and I said this the first week when I talked to Song of Solomon, it's what causes us to run towards Jesus when we screw up as opposed to cowering away from him. Litmus test. Do you believe that God loves you? The question that Rose asked. If you believe that God loved you and that he was your father, litmus test. When you fail, you sin or you struggle, is your response to move towards him or away from him? Most of us, it's away from him. It's when we understand his love for us that we move towards him in our failure because we know it doesn't change his affection for us. And so as we think about, we write down our spiritual solutions today, it's with this in mind. What is it this year that you want God to do in your relationship with him that will cause you to want to be with him more? What is it this year that if God did it, it would draw you into his presence? Now, this is a little tricky because that's something coming up to me afterwards and be like, dude, it's usually the bad things in my life that make me draw close to God. It's like, when I, it's like when I have, like, I'm sick or I'm ailing. It's like, then I really draw close to God. I'm like, yeah, and how jacked up is that? I mean, I was, tell, I was talking to him. I'm like, so you want your motivation to be pain. I mean, this is old. The, the old Catholic in the aesthetics used to do this. You know, if you've seen the, the movie, um, what was that movie where the guy had that thing on his leg? He would feel pain. He would purposely make himself feel pain. Why? Because it would make him remember God. That's not God's plan for us. I mean, does he enjoy when we call out to him when we're in pain at the end of the rope? Absolutely. But he wants us to be motivated because of his love for us. And so what is it this year that if he did, would draw you into his presence? Would, would create in you a desire to go to Ignite at midnight to 6 a.m.? What is it that if God did in your life this year, it would increase in you a greater hunger and love to throw a party for Jesus, to celebrate Jesus? Spiritual illusions, that's where they've come from. It's this idea that we want to live bigger than the world lives. We want to live in a way that if God doesn't show up, we're in big trouble. So what is it this year that God's placed on your heart as he's spoken to you in these intimate times that he wants to bless you in? And whatever it is, it should lead us to a place where we experience God's love. 
And again, when we do this, folks, we become very dangerous as a church. We become attractive to the world and to people in the world in a way that we don't. They come and they see us, they experience us, and they're like, there's something different here. I don't know what it is, but there's something different here. It's because we're living in a way that if God doesn't show up, we're in big trouble. I'm getting ready to go to London this week and speak at the church that planted us. At their conference, I'm sharing my testimony that I'm preaching next Sunday. And, and it used to be that I would look forward to going back every year because I would get kind of refilled. I'd get kind of satisfied. And someone this morning said to me, oh, they said, bring back everything that you experience. And my response to my spirit is, no, not this time. I'm bringing something from RCC that will bless them. I'm bringing something. The story that God is telling through us is powerful. And it began six years ago with this belief that when we together choose as a church to live big in a way that God has to show up, we become dangerous as a church. And it's why we grow. It's why you're here. Because life is messy. Life is painful. We heard it today. And Jesus, you better be real. And spiritual reasons reflect that reality. And so take the white card that's on your seat or that's near you. Look around, grab a white card. There's pins in front of you. And write down something this year, a spiritual solution, a resolution that God could only accomplish. Something so big, something that God has laid on your heart, a desire that you have, that if he shows up, as he shows up and does that through the power of his spirit, it will draw you close to him and to his presence.